In 2009, Naomi Leonard, a Princeton professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering, gave a talk on how flocks of birds and schools of fish move in patterns that seem highly choreographed. They stay together, but somehow keep from colliding with each other. In her lecture, she talked about how these principles could be applied to designing robotic devices that work together efficiently. In the audience was Susan Marshall, a professor and Princeton's director of dance. She posed an interesting question. Would it be possible to explore these flocking ideas with dancers? What followed was an elegant collaboration, which, perhaps surprisingly for a project that started out about birds, fish, and robots, shone light on how human beings respond to others when they're in a group. You can still see a video from the December 2010 Flock Logic performances that followed. These performances included students, professional dancers, and volunteers from across campus who were given some training beforehand. Their dance appeared choreographed as they floated across the floor like fish swimming in tandem, but they were simply following their training, which described the rules of flocking as found in nature. The presentations and the applause were over in a flash, but for Naomi Leonard, her work combining engineering with dance and other art forms was just getting started. From the School of Engineering and Applied Science at Princeton University, this is Composers and Computers, a podcast about the amazing things that can happen when artists and engineers collaborate. I'm Aaron Nathans. Part 6, Dance Me to the End. I say artists and engineers, not just musicians and engineers, because this spirit of collaboration at Princeton goes well beyond coaxing sounds out of a digital device. Just a few weeks ago, in a walk-up Philadelphia art gallery, several unassuming sculptures sat on the ground of a small exhibit room. The gallery is a few blocks away from the city's convention center, where the Institute for Electrical and Electronics Engineers was putting on its robotics convention, and at lunchtime, Convention-goers with name tags and lanyards around their necks began wandering through. As they entered the room, the previously still sculptures perked up as if at attention. You could see, as people walked into the gallery, how their physical expression changed when the robots appeared to take notice of their presence, and how both the people and the robots appeared a little bit more at ease as they got used to each other. Ah. I think it just reacted to you, yeah. Or maybe to Aaron moving out. So it has a little bit of visual perception. Yeah. The motion of the robots gradually became almost meditative and certainly calming. When the visitors walked out, they were inevitably a little bit more serene. We might have just done it again. <laughs> um, you know, we... So when you move in and out Yeah, right. Like we wanted it to, you know, first and foremost be uh, responsive just to, the, just to acknowledge that, it, you know, before you came in, it was all by itself, and now it's in the presence of, of human visitors, and so it's, it pauses a little bit, and then it does that funny little, it's like a little stutter stutter, and because we have springs, you get kind of a little bounciness. Um, Here's some of my interview with Naomi Leonard. What, what I really want to do is explore um, how um, something mechanical, I mean, this is really, um, I think important in this space of, of 
human robotic interaction, which is a really um, uh, important and growing topic. Um, you know, how do we <laughs> engage with these kinds of machines? Um, and here in this project, I think uh, we can uh, explore, in this case, we're thinking about rhythm and how, how, how a mechanical um, system that uh, engages uh, in rhythmic motion can connect to members of an audience. How, how does it make you feel? You know, can we, can we explore how um, communication through bodily movement can inform, say, how robots should respond to an audience member, um, and moreover, how we can make um, this sculpture make people feel soothed or calmed <laughs> and create this kind of um, a, like an active and meditative public space of connection. So I, I do think that, you know, this, these opportunities to explore um, sort of the human side of, of technology um, um, is, is, is absolutely one of the important um, new ways that Art and engineering can um, can push us. It's hard not to feel inspired talking to Naomi Leonard, who graduated from Princeton in 1985. She recalls taking dance classes when she was a young girl, dancing into her 20s, and coming to appreciate the many forms of the arts. Her parents took her to art museums and music, and she watched a lot of dance growing up. At the same time, she also loved mathematics. She went to Princeton as an undergraduate, arriving as an undecided liberal arts major. But then I, I, I sort of discovered engineering as a place where I could be both um, creative and, um, but with the tools that I love, like mathematics um, and physics. So, um, and I actually, you know, took the course that would change my life. I mean, this this field of, of it's called control theory, but it's all about feedback and dynamics. It's all about um, how a system, whether it's a, a you know, mechanical or, or whether it's human um, uh, or, or organic in some way, you know, uh, is sort of constantly uh, taking measure of how it's, what its state is, how it's behaving, and um, and responding and changing how it behaves um, constantly to regulate, to respond, to change. Um, and this was a course where I discovered it was all about, I mean, there was nothing that was turnkey about it. It was all about making, uh, making your own choices based on your insights. And it felt super creative to me. And this is kind of what I've been doing ever since. And I don't think back then I necessarily connected it to my interest in dance um, and art more generally, um, and that, but I think that came together over time. I mean, I think, um, I mean, when I, it's while I've been at Princeton and, and um, working um, with lots of different kinds of collaborators, including people in ecology and evolutionary biology and people in neuroscience, thinking about. Um, groups and collective dynamics and collective behavior um, sort of a natural connection to dance and choreography and even to, to thinking about music um, uh, and other forms of, of 
art. The Rhythm Bots Project is only the latest collaboration between Leonard, who is the Edwin S. Wilsey Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, and Susan Marshall and her colleagues at the Lewis Center for the Arts. In a different project in 2018, Leonard performed a mathematical analysis of dancers' decisions and opportunities for collaborative composition in a rule-based improvisational work entitled There Might Be Others. It was choreographed by Rebecca Lagier, a senior lecturer in dance at Princeton's Lewis Center for the Arts. The music was composed by Princeton professor of music Dan Truman. More recently, she worked with Marshall to create a performance installation called Rhythm Bath, which explores how observing other people's rhythmic movements affect our nervous systems. That inspired the questions about the rhythmic connection between humans and robots, which led to the RhythmBots project. In the spring of 2016, Leonard and several other engineering faculty members began offering a course co-taught by several arts and music faculty. It's been offered ever since each spring. The class is called Transformations in Engineering and the Arts. It's a partnership between the Council on Science and Technology, which Leonard directs, the School of Engineering and Applied Science, the Department of Music, and the Lewis Center for the Arts. Leonard led the development of the course. It was broken into four parts. Adam Finkelstein, a professor of computer science, led off teaching about visuals. Jeff Snyder from the music department, he's the fellow who runs the Princeton Laptop Orchestra, taught the unit on sound. Civil and environmental engineering faculty members Maria Garlock and Sigrid Adriansons led the unit on structure, and Leonard led the unit on movement. Meanwhile, other faculty members from engineering and the arts participated to provide their own expertise. Students created a wide array of projects. For instance, one computer science major designed a system in which a wheeled robot tracks a human performer's movements through a motion capture system and translates that data onto paper. Three other students, including a comparative literature major, built Mother Womb, a portable tent that envelops the user with calming visual, auditory, and tactile sensations. Here's Ryan Osmankowski, who was a student at the time, when I interviewed him about the class in 2017. His project with his two partners transported their audiences into the jungles of South America using motion capture, sound design, lighting, set building, projection, and a whole lot of coding. You're being taught by mechanical engineers and computer scientists, but you're getting lectures from the Lewis Center. You know, Tony-nominated lighting designers and sculptors and, and choreographers coming in weekly to teach you what to do. Uh, for me, I know I want to go into show business when I'm older, um, whether that be Hollywood or Broadway or resorts or theme parks. And for me, this was an amazing class where it's sort of teaching you the theatrics of it, but at the same time, on a tech side. I mean, I think today, in this day and age, I mean, technology is leading the way in everything. And to be good at, at entertainment, you need to know technology. The physical space that the class has been taught in is called the Studio Lab. Naomi Leonard. So we created a space uh, to provide the infrastructure for teaching uh, this course. Um, and, uh, you know, I got input from all kinds of people across campus, you know. So we have theater lights because Jane Cox from the theater department helped us understand what that meant in this space. We have... Um, we have a floor that's sprung for dance. We have um, motion capture so that we can use signals uh, 
not just to control robotics, but also to, to create art around movement. I think it just allows students to um, kind of feel liberated from their labels, <laughs> their disciplinary labels, uh, to learn about different kinds of perspectives that um, they, you know, don't get to <laughs> think about all the time. Um, I mean, some of the students clearly are both engineers and artists. Some of them are, you know, for, you know, majoring in English or neuroscience, doing all different kinds of things. And, and yet um, we forget who's from which departments by the end. And uh, the students have really enjoyed, especially this opportunity to ask their own questions, not feel like they have to be driven by a prompt or a challenge, um, um, and, and really kind of make something new. And, and, you know, often it's most exciting just to hear them talk about having done something that they couldn't imagine that they could have done before they'd taken the class. This class has led to a wider effort for engineers and artists to collaborate at Princeton. Creative X is a new group of faculty who are interested in the intersection between engineering and the arts. It includes engineering faculty, as well as those from music, architecture, and the Lewis Center for the Arts, including dance, theater, visual arts, and creative writing. We come together to ask questions, share our questions, share our perspective, uh, learn about um, what each of us are doing, um, bring ourselves into to collaborations or not. I mean, sometimes somebody is both engineer and artist, and sometimes it's very much kind of a, a meeting of the minds. I think it's exciting to talk about things where there are parallels, parallel parallels in the ways we think and do and make. Um, it's also really interesting to think about the tensions, the different kinds of tensions. Um, that we might experience together or that, that might be created between engineering and the arts um, and how all of this can lead to new kinds of works. Here's Princeton Engineering Dean Andrea Goldsmith talking about how engineers thrive on intersections and collaborations. I think one of my favorite examples is we have an initiative on engineering and the arts which looks to the arts for inspiration, design, new ideas, new ways of doing things in engineering. And, and an example of that is Naomi Leonard, who actually uses dance choreography to understand better how teams of robots can collaborate with each other towards a particular task. So I think that that's, that's a wonderful example. Another example is looking at the intersection of architecture and engineering, where now we have robots that can actually build buildings. And so architecture is, is very much of an intersection of science and engineering and design and building robots that can create architectural structures that would not be possible for humans to create is another really exciting area of the intersection of engineering and disciplines outside of engineering. Leonard's colleague in the School of Engineering and Applied Science Sigrid Adriansons, Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, is working with Rebecca Legere, the Associate Director of the Princeton Dance Program, on an interesting new project. It uses the movements of dancers moving around and within nets as a strategy to explore how to build more resilient nets. 
This project aims to create choreographic works that generate a new understanding of how nets turn stiff when loaded, in this case with dancers, and soften when unloaded. At the same time, dancers have been exploring the interaction between net and human. Legere is choreographing in collaboration with visual artist Janet Eckelman and a team of dancers and riggers. The project got its start at the University of Washington and the Princeton Atelier program and now includes a team of engineers from Princeton and the architecture and engineering firm SOM. They're working to collect data to learn more about the net structure and properties. Rebecca Legere. The apparatus of a net is capable of such drastic transformation, it, it becomes this world into itself. And so artistically, I'm really compelled by something that has that much malleability and unlike a simple fabric, the malleability relates to structure in terms of how it can be a surface we can stand on, how it can be a waveform, how it can be something we hang under, how it can be something we navigate uh, in space. And the volume that's created by draped nets also is this huge potential for sculptural uh, transformation. And so I'm sort of sitting in this space between the visual creative world of working with the visual artist Jenna Eckelman and her points of view on the design space of nets. And then we are taking this very embodied experimental approach of we've done long, long improvisations on nets where we find what's possible. And that time that we've put into with the intelligence of these incredible dance and circus artists where they learn physically if you push all of your force while you're standing away from each other you can stand forever on a net um so and that only came from trial and error and trial and error and lots of pain <laughs> Sigrid Adriansons. I'm very interested in how slender structures behave so whether they are shells or grids or flexible nets um, and they behave in very unexpected ways, um, especially net structures. There is actually not so much known about how they behave when they are loaded. And um, I really like working with Rebecca because uh, Rebecca and her dancers spend a lot of time in the nets uh, because they want to achieve certain things within the nets. And they see and observe phenomena that I cannot really think of myself. So basically, they're a little bit like uh, guinea pigs trying out so many things with the nets, which I could not even imagine uh, doing because um, nets are not really used that much in engineering applications. There's very little known about them. And definitely people do not spend time rolling around in them or jumping in them and seeing how they are behaving. And that's what Rebecca and uh, the dancers are doing. And they're really challenging the nets to what I would call very extreme behaviors. And in doing that, you know, some very interesting uh, engineering phenomena come out. And I'm interested in this phenomena, but I would never discover these things just by looking at a net hanging in my lab, right? It takes people to really challenge those nets and do very extreme things with them. And that's what they are doing. Lejeur said it's interesting that movement in one part of the net can affect what happens in another part of the net. Today, Lejeur is a professor of practice in dance at the Lewis Center for the Arts and Adriansons will be promoted to full professor in July. Engineering in the arts is just one example of how engineers have been increasingly looking to collaborate outside the discipline for ways to help humanity. Andrea Goldsmith. I think that 
interdisciplinarity is a relatively new phenomenon in universities. So if you look at how universities grew up, they grew up around disciplines and they're structured around disciplines. You have departments that follow particular disciplines and then you have schools that are a larger umbrella around particular disciplines like the School of Engineering. And it was, I would say, in the last few decades where the problems that engineering could solve became much more interdisciplinary, bigger problems like climate change, like, um, you know, food shortages, like um, smart cities, like mitigating uh, flooding. Uh, there's so many things, uh, even in biomedical research, where um, the need for bringing larger groups of people together to solve these problems, larger pe groups of people that were not just engineers became apparent. And I think that one of the advantages that Princeton has, I would say an unfair advantage, is that we are engineering within a liberal arts university, which has a long and, and storied tradition of the liberal arts thriving here. And so our engineers um, are educated within that culture. They operate and work within that culture. And I think that that gives them a much broader sense of engineering design beyond what they're learning in their classes or in their research labs. And that is where engineering, the profession, needs to go to thrive, is really reaching out and, and creating connections to other disciplines, creating centers and institutes and initiatives that are interdisciplinary, because some of the most important problems that engineering and technology can solve no longer lie within the disciplines, but across disciplines. When we come back from the break, I'll give some parting thoughts. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might want to check out our other podcast, which also deals with technology. Cookies, Tech Security and Privacy, deals with the many ways technology finds its way into our lives, in ways we notice and in ways we might not. If you're looking to shore up the security of your personal data and communication, you'll find some great tips from some of the best informed people in the business. You can find Cookies in your favorite podcast app or on our website, engineering.princeton.com. Edu. That's engineering.princeton.edu. Let's get back to our epilogue episode of Composers and Computers. This is part six of this podcast. If you missed the prior episodes, please check out the rest. It's a fascinating story about how a batch of young composers at Princeton in the 1960s found their way into the computer center in the new engineering quadrangle, hoping to coax sound out of a room-sized mainframe computer. The work they did changed the sound of music. Of course, this story was told with Princeton at its center. Other institutions have their own stories to tell in this area, and they have told those stories often. Go to the Columbia Computer Music Center's website, and you'll see their great story meticulously told. They even have their own archives. Or go visit the website of Karma, the Center for Computer Research and Music and Acoustics at Stanford. There's plenty to see there, too. There are Centers for Computer Music at Indiana, the University of Virginia, Brooklyn College, the University of North Texas, 
I could go on. Each has their own computer music origin story, testifying to why their work has been consequential. At Princeton, our part of this story fell between the cracks over the last few decades. Numerous people that I interviewed mentioned how lucky we were that we didn't create a formal center around computer music, which might have pigeonholed our work in this area and constrained the wild creativity of the faculty and students that made it possible. But since the work relied solely on the interest and availability of the people who were here at the time, when they left, well, the stories went with them. My goal through this podcast has been to try to piece this story back together while most of its participants are still alive and able to share their memories. And it is a consequential story. In the words of Seth Cluett, who received his doctorate in music from Princeton and who is assistant director of the Computer Music Center at Columbia, quote, I look at it like this. If you think about how many people listen to music and then realize that 100% of music is consumed via technology that had at its origins the innovations of the Princeton, Columbia, Bell Labs, and RCA research on audio technology and computing. It paints a picture of radical curiosity, driven creativity, and divergent artistic thinking, pushing linear thinking engineers to innovate decades earlier than they would have done on their own. So let's not forget the work of the composers and engineers in the Computer Center work that started 60 years ago. They sparked that spirit of curiosity, creativity, and artistic and collaborative thinking in the digital space. As you can see from the work of Naomi Leonard and her colleagues, it's a spirit that shines brighter than ever today here at Princeton Engineering. I want to finish with a story that really didn't fit into any of the other episodes, but it's a great story, so I'll tell it here. You might remember from episodes two and three, Charles Dodge, the Columbia grad student turned faculty member who used to hang out at the Princeton Computer Center a lot in the 1960s and 70s, because at the time we had better equipment. He was briefly a computer music instructor at Princeton. He learned linear predictive coding, a form of digital synthesis of the human voice from Princeton music professor Godfrey Wenham, just before Wenham passed away in 1975. It was also in 1975 that the phone rang in the middle of the night at Dodge's home. 3 a.m. to be exact, but it was midnight Los Angeles time. Dodge struggled to find the telephone and picked it up. Charles Dodge. And uh, the voice of the other one said, Hi, it's Stevie. Yes, that Stevie. He, we, had a mutual, we had a mutual acquaintance, and uh, the the. Her, our, our mutual acquaintance had played for him, or had sent him, I guess, maybe not in person, to send him a tape of, of uh, Peace of Mind. And uh, it was called Story of Our Lives. Stevie Wonder really liked it and was really interested in it and wanted to wanted to talk about it. And we uh, we talked for probably an hour about uh, about computers and and how you could use them in music. Well, the story of our lives is, is about a couple who is who are reading a book 
and at a certain point the uh, the book speaks and the uh, the voice of the book was a um, what you call it a, a, a feeding a complex electronic sound through the uh, through the resonance the changing resonances of a speaking voice removing essentially the simulation of a vocal cord and, and instead implanting a, a complex electronic sound. So there's this complex electronic sound that's actually articulating language. It's as if it were reading from, from this book. Stevie, Stevie said that was really scary, <laughs> and and it, and it is. It's uh, it's very um, yeah, it's really makes you it's, it's chilling, I guess you could say. The method that Dodge used to create that chilling sound was called cross synthesis. He did it by feeding a composed piece of electronic music through the linear predictive coding analysis of his voice reading the text of the poem upon which the piece is based. It results in ghostly, barely intelligible electronic speech. So, did Stevie Wonder use the method that Dodge explained to him in his music that followed to produce his own ghostly sound? Hard to say for sure. But take a listen to the eerie background vocal sounds in his song, Race Babbling, from his 1979 album, Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants. Dodge says it sounds like he was taking the idea of cross-synthesis and using it with vocoder technology instead of linear predictive coding. And that, just maybe, is how you get from Milton Babbitt to Stevie Wonder. This has been Composers and Computers, a production of the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. I'm Aaron Nathans, your host and producer of this podcast. I conducted all the interviews. Our podcast assistant is Mirabel Weinbach. Thanks to Dan Kearns for helping us out with audio engineering. Thanks to Dan Gallagher and the folks at Mendel Music Library for collecting music for this podcast. Graphics are by Ashley Butera. Steve Schultz is the Director of Communications at Princeton Engineering. Thanks to Scott Lyon. And thank you to the 25 or so people who agreed to be interviewed for this oral history podcast project. This would not have been possible without your enthusiastic cooperation. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Show notes, including a listing of music heard on this episode, sources, and an audio recording of this podcast are available at our website, engineering.princeton.edu. If you get a chance, please leave a review. It helps. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Princeton University. Thanks for listening, everybody. Peace.